All right, well, tonight uh, we go back into the WABC Statement of Faith, and uh, we've got a few shorter topics coming up. So I'm looking to cover three items um, in one session here. Um, the last few weeks we have covered the first four articles, which were the Scriptures, the True God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And the next three articles are actually pretty short. It's um, the devil or Satan, uh, creation, and uh, the fall of man. And, and I think it's good to have all three of them together. They're all tightly connected in terms of what it's addressing here. Um, so we'll take a look at what it says about the devil or Satan. And I, all three statements are pretty straightforward. They're, they're pretty um, easy to understand. It says, we believe that Satan is a personal being the unholy God of this age and the author of all the powers of darkness and is destined to the judgment of an eternal justice in the lake of fire. All right. Um, so first we say that we believe that Satan is a personal being. Why is it important to say that? Yeah, he's, he's actually real. And that sounds really obvious, but there are a lot of churches that deny his existence. That, that Satan is really kind of the doubts that's, that, that lies within our hearts. It's the evil that's within man, that it's not a real person. It's not a, a real entity out there, but indeed he is um, a real entity. And not only is he a personal being, he is the unholy God of this age. Now, where do we get uh, that, kind of, um, that kind of statement, that he's the unholy God of this age? Well, it's in the papers, it's on the television. It's all risque and... Profane. Yeah, you, you see the impacts of Satan upon this world, um, certainly. It just, just turn on uh, media, turn on, you know, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to find movies that are wholesome to watch. It's harder and harder to find TV shows that are wholesome to watch. Um, I know some of you don't even have TV anymore. You um, don't even watch it, don't even allow your family to watch it for, I think, reasons that I completely understand. Um, the unholy God of this age, we also get that from um, the book of Ephesians. Right, we, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. We're about to get there pretty soon. I know we're moving kind of slowly through chapter 1, but we get to the beginning of chapter 2, and it's going to present um, Satan as the, the god of this age. And then after that, we've got the author of all the powers of darkness. Um, so we realize that Satan doesn't operate alone, does he? Um, where would we go to find out um, that there is more than just Satan himself? Yeah, Revelation, sure, sure. Yeah, we, we find that, uh, that, that, you know, there's the Antichrist, there's the beast. There, there are multiple entities being, um, being mentioned in Revelation. But there are, there are the angels that fell with Satan. Right, right. And, and so you see references like Isaiah 14, um, I think Ezekiel 28, um, that, that mention the, the fall of the angels. Well, yep. You just uh, follow the life of Jesus and how many times he runs into it. Exactly, exactly, right, right. Yeah, so you go through the gospel accounts, and there are demons all over the place. You know, so we, we've got Satan, and, and the thing about Satan, what is it that separates Satan from God, aside from the fact that, you know, Satan is unholy and God is holy? Okay, we know that. We know Satan is evil, God is good. But what are some other differences between God and Satan? Satan is created. Satan is created, that's right. He, he is a created being. I mean, he didn't exist from eternity past, right? Um, what else? What, what other differences? Yeah, he, he deceives. Yeah, I mean, definitely he has um, um, purposes that are not good. Mike? Yeah, uh, God loves us. Hate him. Satan does hate Right, him. right. He hates us. 
Now, what about um, in terms of, of power, um, abilities, um, characteristics? I mean, aside from the, the good and evil, which we know is there, um, how would you differentiate the two? Ah, oh, yeah, there, there you go. And Clark? Uh, well, I was just uh, temptation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he seeks to he seeks to tempt us, but I, I like what Linda said. I mean, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Um, in fact, uh, turn with me to uh, Job. Let's take a look at Job. And uh, we'll go to the very first chapter of Job. Uh, the first two chapters are actually quite um, instructive with which regards to how Satan operates. And Job. Chapter 1, verse 1. Um, and in fact, um, I don't know if you realize this, um, by many people's estimation, Job was probably the first book written. Um, now, it wasn't the first book in terms of the historical account. I mean, Genesis covers beginnings, but Job was probably written before even Genesis was written. And, and we believe that it was probably Moses that, uh, that wrote Job. So it's very interesting when you think that this is the very first book in Scripture. And the very first chapter of the very first book ever written starts off with this interaction between God and Satan. It's very interesting. Um, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions, and there, there are quite many, um, and uh, it talks about his practices from verse 4 that uh, that he would hold a feast um, he, he would offer up burnt offerings for them in verse 5 but when you go down to verse 6 now there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them and the lord said to satan from where do you come then satan answered the lord and said from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it now, one of the things um, that is different between Satan and the Lord, and Linda, you mentioned that Satan can only do what the Lord allows him to do. So what we see is there is a very discernible difference in power. Um, we say that God is omnipresent. What does it mean to be omnipresent? Everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere. He's everywhere at all times, right? I mean, there's, there's no place that you can run from God. But what we see here in Satan is, what is he doing? Satan answered the Lord in verse 7, roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. What does that tell you about Satan? Is he omnipresent? No. 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 He he's, he's actually have to, go, have to go from place to place. He, he's not everywhere at one time. Now, we've got demons. We've got a lot of demons that, that do the bidding of Satan as well. Um, so you, know, you can refer to that as kind of the army of darkness, the forces of darkness. Um, and they, they operate in much the same way. And, and really their goal is this, when you think about it. Their, their goal, uh, you, know, you look around the world and, and you see a lot of the, you know, the, the, the filth that's on TV and, and movies and whatnot. Um, but when it comes to like spirituality and religion, um, there's multiple religions all over the world. I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of religions probably. <laughs> What religion do you think Satan and the demons want you to follow? Anything, yeah, anything except, yeah, anything but, right? So it's like, look, I don't care what you follow, just don't follow the truth. And so in that way, you also see when you look around society just how determined um, society is to block Christian values, to block, you know, Christian ideals. I mean, just look at the, um, just look at the fast food chain Chick-fil-A, right? And, and how much grief they get, you know, for, for you know, what, what is really just honest business practices. You know, and they, they support certain organizations, which they have a complete right to do. 
you know, but they, they get vilified, they get demonized. Um, you know, when, when people post on social media that they're at Chick-fil-A, uh, you know, they're going to get, uh, they're going to get roasted, especially if they happen to be like a liberal, you know, a leftist who um, stands against Christianity. They'll, you know, they'll be mocked and, and uh, criticized by their, their fellow um, people. So Satan here, he's roaming about the earth. He's roaming to and fro. And then Satan answered the Lord. I'm sorry, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? All right, so this tells you something right here. Because as Satan is roaming about on the earth, what do you think he's doing? He's searching. What is he searching for? He's something to accuse. He wants to accuse Job of. Yeah, he is the accuser of the brethren, right? He is the accuser of the brethren. He is roaming about and, and he's looking for people to accuse. He's looking for people to to afflict. Um, and, and really, he's not looking just to afflict anyone. He wants to afflict people who are supposedly godly and righteous and upright. You know, he, he wants to take them down. So the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, this is a very interesting interaction because I... You know, one of the things we know about the Lord is that he is also omniscient. What does it mean to be omniscient? Um, All-knowing. All-knowing. Omnipotent is all-powerful. Omniscient means he knows everything. And someone that I knew was questioning whether God really knew everything. And and, uh, this person pointed out from verse 7 this question where the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Well, if the Lord already knows that, why does he have to ask that? Well, he asked that. Because he wants to reveal to us what Satan is doing. And then, really, when God or the Lord, either God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ, when you get to the New Testament, whenever you get two questions, the first question is usually meant to set up the second question. The first question is more of an incidental question. It's just meant as a setup. The answer is not really all that important. It's just meant to set up the second question. So when the Lord asks, where do you come from? The real question he's trying to set up is, have you considered my servant Job? And it's very interesting that it's the Lord that makes this suggestion, isn't it? Right? You know, sometimes we we think that we go through hardship and afflictions because we've done something to upset God, because we've done something wrong, because we're not following God the way we ought to follow. But in this case, God is the one that brings up Job. And why does he bring him up? It's not because of something that he's done wrong. It's because he's done everything right. He's actually upright. He's actually blameless. And the Lord is actually the one making the suggestion, have you considered my servant Job? And what does the Lord say about him? I mean, this is a phenomenal description. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. I mean, this was a man who worshiped God, who sought to do good. You know, and, and earlier on, when you read about his behavior and his, and, and his activities with regards to his family, he even offered sacrifices for his family. I mean, he was essentially the priest for his family, offering sacrifices for any sins that they may have committed. So Job was very much a righteous man. And then verse 9, Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? You got, what, what is that question telling you? What, what, is, what is Satan trying to suggest here? I mean, first of all, we know that Job is someone who fears God. Is that good or bad? That's good. That's good. That, that, um, it, that doesn't always mean that you're afraid of what he is going to do to you. Fear is often um, synonymous with reverence. 
Right? It's, it's respect, it's honor that, that you pay to, to God. So he fears God in, in a very good way. But Satan really asks the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? So in other words, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's honoring you and he's following you, but he, he's really doing it for nothing. And verse 10, he goes on to explain, have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. So that question, has Job feared you for nothing? The idea is that, look, of course he fears you. Of course he respects you. You're giving him everything he wants. Yeah, I mean, and that we understand that in an earthly sense, right? If, if someone can get everything they want from you, they're going to be very nice to you. You know, they're going to love you. You know, they're going to sing your praises. And then when they find out that you can no longer give them everything that that person wants, oftentimes you'll see that person turn against you. Right. And, and so that and then that happens with scammers all the time today. Right. If there's a scammer out there, if there's someone who's dishonest, if there's a criminal, if that person thinks they can get something out of you that they want, they're going to be the nicest people in the world to you. But the moment they realize they can't get anything out of you, you know, they show their true colors. Right. So, I mean, this is what so this is what Satan's saying to, to God. You know what? Job is just he's no different than anyone else. You know, you take away all those blessings. He's going to curse you. And so what we have is this kind of cosmic challenge, this cosmic challenge here. Verse 12, the Lord answers Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And that's what Linda was saying, that Satan can't do what the Lord doesn't allow him to do. So the Lord actually has to give him permission so if you are actually being afflicted by actual demons, if you're actually being afflicted by Satan in some way, you know, recognize that it's only by the divine sovereignty of God that he allows it. And in fact, who amongst the disciples did Satan use? We know he used Judas, but guess who else he used? He used Peter. When did he use Peter? Yeah, yeah. Turn, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he tried to convince Jesus not to go to the cross. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's uh, Matthew chapter 16. So yeah, he, he, denied, he denied Jesus Christ, but really where we see the direct work of Satan is in chapter 16, when Peter says, um, part of this um, interchange, you know, when Jesus Christ asked the disciples, who, who do the people say that I am? Simon Peter in, in Matthew 16, 16 answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wonderful confession. That confession came from God the Father in heaven. That's what we see in verse 17. Jesus says to him, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but uh, my Father who is in heaven. And then we go down, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Um, so we see there as an example that um, Satan was using Peter to try to be a stumbling block to Jesus. And what's very interesting is that one moment, Peter is giving a confession, a revelation that came from God the Father, 
And the very next moment, it's Satan using him as a mouthpiece, right? You know, and so we always have to be wary of, um, you know, and this is one of the reasons why we don't trust simply in our feelings. You know, we don't simply trust in what we think feels right to us. Because in that moment, that's what felt right to Peter. And I can imagine if any one of us, certainly myself, if I was there, I probably would have thought the same thing Peter was thinking. No, you're, you're the king. You're, you're our messiah. You know, we're, we're going to do everything we can to stop this from happening. You know, so Peter's reaction is a very understandable reaction. Wanting to protect the Lord, but not realizing that, you know what, this is God's plan. And there is no salvation for mankind unless the Lord Jesus Christ does this, right? So I thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ did not listen to Peter. You know, otherwise there, there is no salvation. You know, we don't, uh, we don't have what we have now through the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, what's interesting, though, is that this is not going to be the last time Satan is going to use Peter. Now, of course, we know that Peter denies Jesus Christ three times, but there's, there's, a, there's a very explicit reference, actually. Do you guys, uh, anyone know? There's actually a very explicit reference about Satan and Peter. Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the book of Matthew. Go to the book of Luke. So Luke would be the um, the fourth gospel. No, third gospel. Sorry, the third gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke twenty two, verse thirty one. So we see in Luke twenty two, verse thirty one. Um, Jesus has these words for Peter, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now that that's that's a pretty vivid picture, right? I mean, and, and this is once again pointing to the fact that Satan can't do what uh, can't do anything unless God gives him permission. And in this case, Jesus Christ is the one that knows that Satan has asked for permission. So if you, you go back to kind of that cosmic dialogue that was happening in Job chapter 1 between God and Satan, it's happening again here at this point in time. God and Satan are now together, and now Satan is asking for permission to sift Peter like wheat. He wants to go after Peter. Now, think for a moment. Why does he want to go after Peter? Yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was the most prominent of, of the apostles. You know, every time you, you see the apostles um, listed, whenever they're mentioned, he's always kind of in this first group along with John and James. Peter, John, and James always mentioned kind of in this first grouping. And on the day of Pentecost, who is it that's going to preach the first sermon? Peter. Yeah, it's Peter. Yeah, yeah and, and so, so, yeah, the keys, yeah, the keys to, to heaven, the, the keys that, um, you know, the loosing and the binding, that, that, um, that's going to start with Peter. So it starts on the day of Pentecost, and really the first several chapters of Acts is really about the ministry of Peter. You know, it's not until you get um, further in about um, Acts uh, 9, you're introduced to, well, Acts 7, you're introduced to Paul. Acts 9, Paul is saved, and, and then uh, by Acts 13, Paul is brought to Antioch, and from there, really, the, the narrative really shifts to the, uh, the, the ministry of Paul. But before then, it was really about Peter. Peter was seen as the leader. Um, amongst the apostles. And even when Paul, his first missionary journey, he's, he's witnessing to Gentiles, all right? So Paul's got that title, Apostle to the Gentiles, right? He's witnessing to the Gentiles. He's starting all these Gentile churches. Do you guys remember what the issue was after he comes back from his first missionary journey? He comes back to Antioch, and what happens? 
argument over circumcision. Argument over circumcision. There are Judaizers that are coming and saying, no, those Gentiles are not saved unless they get circumcised. They're saying, Paul, your ministry was a sham. Your ministry is a failure unless you go back and make sure that they get circumcised. And Paul is so upset that they end up going all the way to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem. Okay, let's, let's stand before, you know, kind of our church fathers, the, the original disciples of Jesus Christ, kind of this church council, if you will, um, in Jerusalem. And who is it that stands up for Paul? It's Peter. Because by the grace of God, not only does Peter have that kind of influence, but by the grace of God, Peter actually had an experience in saving Cornelius, didn't he? He's the one that he had that vision from heaven. I mean, think about the perfect sovereignty of God. That, that God would have Peter go through that experience and then have Paul witness to all these Gentile churches. And then when it comes to the Jerusalem Council, Peter can say, oh, no, what Paul has experienced with these Gentile churches, I've experienced as well. And so when Peter stands up and says it, they know that he's, he, is, he was really the main disciple with Jesus Christ. And if he says it, well, it's hard to argue against him. You know, it's hard to argue against him. So it's, uh, it's very interesting. But here in Luke 22... Satan is asking permission to sift Peter like wheat. But then what is the response? I mean, look at verse 32. But I have what? I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And now let's stop right there. So what we see here, what we see here, Satan's goal in sifting Peter like wheat is to break his faith. It's the exact same thing with Job. He wants to do the exact same thing. He wants to show God, look, you've blessed Peter. You know, you've had him walking around with the Messiah. You, you've, you've shown him all these signs and miracles and wonders and, and whatnot. Um, but I'm going to go after him and I'm going to prove to you that Peter's faith is going to be a sham. You, you know, and certainly it almost looked that way when Peter denies him three times at the cross, right? You know, but Jesus here says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, this is really kind of a prophecy of what Peter will do in the future. You know, he's going to fail um, at the scene of the crucifixion, but he's going to be restored. And then he's going to be that's going to stand up, the one that stands up and gives the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And it's really beautiful how God, Jesus, takes the time to restore him yeah. by the seashore. Yeah, isn't it? After he had risen. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, someone like Peter, who is always putting his foot in his mouth, if you follow, you know, the life of Jesus Christ, right? He's the one that just speaks without thinking, um, oftentimes. Um, he's, he's the one that jumps out of the boat and just starts running on the water, which, by the way, I mean, shows his faith, right? He's, he's, the, one that, he's the only one willing to get out of the boat. He's running on the water, and then when he realizes what he's doing, then, then he starts to sink. Um, but yeah, you know, he, he failed Jesus, but then he gets restored, and then he is the one to... Um, to, to really bring um, the start of the church. And when we think back, and we talked about this earlier, you know, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me that's going to baptize with what? The Holy Spirit. And that didn't actually happen during Jesus' earthly ministry. That happened after he ascended up into heaven on the day of Pentecost. Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit started on the day of Pentecost with the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. I, it, it's just, it, it's marvelous how God works through, you know, unworthy vessels like us, you know, to be able to accomplish his purposes. Um, so we see here that Jesus shows Peter that the same thing that happened with Job, you know, Satan was trying to do with Peter. And turn with me to 1 Peter 5. 
This is not lost on Peter. And he realizes that his ability to sustain in the faith has been a result of that prayer of Jesus Christ. You know, he was protected by the prayers of Jesus Christ, and he recognizes what Satan had been trying to do to him. <laughs> Chapter 5, go to verse 6. First Peter 5, verse 6, Peter says this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, the, the idea that you need to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I mean, these people were undergoing um, persecution. They were under the persecution or threat of persecution. This is the time of Nero, right? Nero had already started persecuting um, Christians for a fire in Rome that they didn't, that they didn't commit. Um, and, and there were a lot of people started to point the finger at Nero and Nero needed a scapegoat. So he used the Christians as a scapegoat. But here's Peter saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, meaning whatever trials and tribulations you're going through is actually under the mighty hand of God. So humble yourselves under that mighty hand that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then verse seven, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he... Yeah, he cares for you. You know, I, the, the message I had this morning, I talked about the fact that we matter to God. You know, God loves us. He, he cares for us. I mean, it, and it's, it's magnificent when you think about it. I mean, just how, I mean, I look at my life and how, how much I've, you know, dishonored God with my prior manner of living and how much I failed even after um, becoming saved. And, and how is it that God could use me for his good purposes because he, he cares for us. He cares for each one of us. I mean, that's the whole idea that he adopted us into his family. We're, we're his children, you know, and, and he gives us what, um, what, he, what a father would give to his own children. So he cares for you. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the way you do that is through prayer. But look at verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour you know we um this is a very recognizable verse i mean if you've been in the church for any period of time you recognize this verse you know this this idea that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but it's very interesting that that verse comes right after peter's statement to cast all your anxieties upon god and i that's not that's not coincidental i believe that they are very much connected you know, I was actually talking to Brett today about biblical counseling a little bit. And, and this is one of these biblical counseling verses where, you know, when you, when you talk to people about anxiety, anxiety is about uncertainty about the circumstances they're going through. But if you have an, a tremendous trust in the almighty power of God, if you trust in his sovereignty, if you trust that God causes all things to come together for good, and that even the trials and tribulations that are coming upon you is by God's good hand, by God's good purposes— if you fully trust that, there's actually no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to be anxious. And, and here's the thing. When we give in to an anxiety, and I'm not, I'm not saying that anyone who feels anxiety um, is going to be devoured by Satan. That's not what I'm saying. But, but there is a point where anxiety can overtake you. And when anxiety overtakes you and you become desperate and you start to cast away what it is that, that you believe, you, you start to throw away your, your, you know, your trust in God and the idea that, that God is sovereign over all things. I mean, that's what we're seeing with a lot of people that are walking away from the faith. People are walking away from the faith saying the promises of God don't make sense to me. And, and they're, you know, a lot of them are in Pentecostal churches where a lot of these promises are being made. 
you know, in Pentecostal churches, you know, you've got the signs and the gifts and the wonders and whatnot. And oftentimes it's connected to prosperity teaching. And prosperity teaching is really a house of cards because prosperity teaching is teaching that God wants you to bless you in this life, not necessarily the life to come. There's more of an emphasis upon the here and now versus the future, you know, when Jesus Christ comes and sets up his eternal age. And what happens is that sets up a lot of disappointment. You know, so when people start to go through trials and they start to feel the anxiety of those trials and not seeing the promises of this age being met according to the promises they've heard through this prosperity teaching, they'll get anxious. And some of them end up departing the faith. And, and that is an example of how they've been devoured by Satan. They, they, they have failed the kind of test that we saw in Job 1, right? Where, where Job, Satan wants to touch all that Job has in order to prove that his faith is a sham. And that's what Satan delights in. He delights in proving that the faith of Christians is a sham. That's what he tries to do. That's why he brings accusations day and night. So it's amazing, even, even from the very first book written, which is Job, all the way to the time of Jesus Christ and how he used Peter, and even his request to sift Peter like wheat, and all the way to the final book of Revelation where it's said that Satan accuses the brethren day and night, you see the modus operandi of Satan, don't you? He's just trying to blaspheme God. He is trying to dishonor God. And even from the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, chapter 1, and this is the account of the fall of man. And, and this is going to tie into the other two sections we're going to cover tonight. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we see now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Right there. Right there. Okay. Adam and Eve, they know what they've been told by God. And now here is Satan through the serpent essentially trying to make them question whether God is telling the truth. That's all this is. Because eventually he gets down to the point where in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You know what he's doing there? He's calling God a liar. He's saying God's a liar. God just doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want you to know good and evil the way he knows good and evil. And, and, and by in saying that, he ends up kind of stoking the desires of the woman to, to want to be like God. You know, and then Adam, though he is the male, he should have the spiritual leadership. He's the one that should be protecting the woman from this. Instead of protecting the woman, he ends up engaging um, in this rebellion against God. But all throughout, what you see is that Satan's operation is to try to undermine God. And of course, we've got the temptation of Christ, right? Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And by the way, I forgot to read the rest of that 1 Peter 5 passage where Peter says, resist him, right? He says, um, says, resist him. In fact, stay on Matthew 4, but let me read that real quick. 
So Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But then verse 9, he says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Um, so resist him, resist him. And how do you resist him? By being firm in your faith. And I love the temptation account in Matthew chapter 4. Um, where is Jesus with regards to his earthly ministry at this point? What's that? Yeah, he's just starting. He had just been baptized by the Holy Spirit, right? I, so there was the baptism scene that happens right at the end of chapter 3. And it's interesting when you look at verse 1, it says, verse 1 of chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So the, the Spirit that came upon Jesus actually led him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, why do you think that is? Unlike who? Unlike Eve. Unlike Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve. Right, right. So the, the failure of Adam and Eve is that they gave in to the temptation from Satan. And so now Jesus is going to go straight into the wilderness. That's why Jesus is called the second Adam. That's right. Yeah, so you see that in Romans chapter 5. You see, you see a lot of comparisons to being to the original Adam and kind of the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ ends up reversing a lot of what the first Adam brought in terms of sin and death and, and all of that. Um, so here in Matthew 4, I mean, each of these challenges from, from Satan. So the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, what's interesting is that what Satan is speaking is truth. He's speaking truth saying, if you are the Son of God, and indeed Jesus Christ is the Son of God, go ahead and command these stones to become bread, which certainly Jesus Christ had the power to do. What was Satan trying to do, though? Test him. Test him in what way? Yeah, Mike. I, I think his, his goal all along was to get him to act on his own will outside the will of the Father. Yeah, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. Well, because Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he died as a substitute. He died as a substitute for who? Us. For us. For us. And, and really the, the idea here is that Jesus lived a perfect life, but he lived a perfect life without, in, in human flesh without relying upon his divine power okay, to get him through difficulties. Now, we, we do see exercise of divine power as willed by God the Father. But in terms of his hungers, his difficulties, and, and here we see that he is hungry, he, he's continuing to entrust himself to God the Father. And this is, I mean, this is so poetic when you think about Matthew chapter 6, when, when Jesus says, you know, do not, do not worry about what the Gentiles worry about, right? Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear, right? And when Jesus says that, do not worry that God will provide, Jesus himself was the example of that from the very beginning. Starting in the wilderness, he himself proved that even 40 days and nights without eating, he continued to trust in God and not relying upon his own divine power to go ahead and feed himself. If he had relied upon his own divine power, then he couldn't say, then we couldn't say that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Right? I mean, that's in the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ can sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because every time he experienced human weaknesses, he never relied upon his divine power to overcome it. He felt the weight of those weaknesses. 
And so he answered back, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it's so fitting that his first response is exactly this. You know, he ends up being an example to us. Peter says that. Peter says in his letter in 1 Peter says that Jesus Christ is an example for us to follow. And it starts right here in the temptation account. That Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan, he didn't rely upon his divine powers to make Satan go away. He didn't rely upon divine powers to take his hunger away so that he wouldn't have that trial. What does he do? He ends up quoting scripture. He ends up relying upon the word of God. And that is what we can do. We can do that when we're being tempted. And so when Peter says, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, but resist him firm in your faith. How do you stay firm in your faith? You stay firm in your faith by being rooted in the word of God. You know, when um, last night when we had the family fun night, um, I did a devotional right from Psalm 1. And what does Psalm 1 tell us? That, that the, the righteous man meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. And he is like, what? A tree whose roots go deep into the ground. You know, a tree that's planted by streams of water. You know, the idea that when you get a tree that's planted by streams of water, that tree continues to produce fruit, but that tree is rock solid, right? I mean, trees, when they're rooted deep, I mean, that is a picture of stability, and that's, it's not accidental that trees can live well over 100 years, right, in the right kind of environment. I mean, they, they can sustain for an enormous period of time. Um, so here, it, it's, it's so picturesque that Jesus does not resort to his divine abilities, but instead quotes scripture. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And with that statement, he shows us the full sufficiency of the scriptures. You know, again, this is, this is a biblical counseling verse. Um, you want to be able to resist the temptations of Satan, you rely upon the word of God just as Jesus Christ did, right? And then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. We see that in verse 5. And said to them, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And now Satan is quoting scripture, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, what's going on here? You know, I mean, he takes them off. He's like, look, you're, you're hungry. You know, you're, you're physically, you're, you're weak. You know, just throw yourself off and make the angels come and take care of you. Okay, if you're, not, if you're not willing to turn stone into bread, then make the angels come and take care of you. You know, but Jesus responds back. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. Right? I mean, if he throws himself off and waits for the angels to come and save him, well, once again, he's not really enduring the physical trials of his humanity, is he? He's just rel relying on heavenly beings to come and save him. And then verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Wow. Uh, you, you know, in other words, look, Satan knows what Jesus Christ is coming for. Satan knows the, 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 the difficult path that Jesus Christ is going to walk all the way to the cross. Satan already knows that. But if he can get Jesus Christ to worship him at that point in time, he's going to look, Jesus, you know, God the Father promised Jesus that the nations would be his inheritance. You see that in Psalm 2. The nation would be his inheritance. But Satan is saying, look, you can bypass all that. 
You don't have to go through the suffering. You don't have to go through the rejection. You don't have to go to the cross and, and, to, and to be mocked and ridiculed, right? You don't have to be spat upon and beaten. You don't have to go, you don't have to face the wrath of God. Just bow to me right here and I'll give you the world right now. That's right. It, it is not his to give. Though he is the prince of the power of the air at this time. He is the God of this world. Ultimately, it's not his to give because God's going to take that back. But at this point, this is the dominion of Satan, this world. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I mean, each one of these three responses... <laughs> I mean, talk about biblical counseling verses. These are tremendous biblical counseling verses for trials that we go through. Learning from the example of Jesus Christ right here and there. And then I love verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, what happens? Angels came and began to minister to him. Now, Jesus was unwilling to just jump off the temple and make those angels come. What did he do? He trusted God the Father for the right time to be ministered to. And that's what happens with us. You know, that's why, that's why Peter said, you know, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself at the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he will exalt you. You know, there, there's going to be a proper time where after you've gone through these trials, God himself is going to restore you. He, he's going to be the one to minister to you. But there is a good purpose for the trial that you're going through. And I mean, going back to Job, and we didn't even get to chapter 2. We don't have to. I mean, it's basically the same kind of pattern. But get back to Job. You know, the entire book of Job, I mean, after he's been afflicted, after he's lost his family, he's lost all his possessions, you know, he, he's got boils and lesions on his skin and all that. Even his wife is telling him, just curse God and die, right? Just get it over with. Just, just curse God and end it right now. That's, that's what Job's wife is saying. And, you know, and, and Job, you know, to his credit, he refuses to do that. But the rest of the dialogue for the majority of the book of Job, what, what's the whole dialogue about between Job and his friends? You sinned. You must have done something wrong. Surely you've done something wrong because God blesses those who are righteous and, and he, he punishes those who are unrighteous or who are rebellious. And certainly there is some truth to that. I mean, in that wisdom that God does reward the righteous and he does punish the unrighteous, but it doesn't mean that those afflictions came to Job for that reason. In fact, why did those afflictions come to Job in the first place? Yeah, because he was righteous. It wasn't because he was unrighteous. It wasn't because he was rebellious. It was specifically because he was righteous. And God was going to prove that his faith was real. But Job has one complaint. Job has one, one complaint that he wants to lift up before God. What is that? You know what that is? I mean, in the back and forth, Job has something that he wants to say to God. There, there is an issue that Job has that he wants to bring before God. You know what that is? Job wants to know, why did you bring this upon me? Job knows that he has done everything he can to, to live a righteous life before God. He has served God. He, he, he has acted as a priest for his family. He has obeyed God. He's like, I just want to know why this is happening. Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? What have I done? I, as far as I know, there, there is nothing that I have done that warranted this kind of, this kind of treatment. And you know what's interesting? When God responds, when God ultimately responds... What does God do? What, how does God respond? Does God ever answer that question? He actually doesn't. What does he do? Say, say it again. He what? 
He ultimately restores Job, but what is the initial response from God? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I created the mountains and all that roams upon the earth, right? I mean, he, he goes through the creation account, and basically he reminds Job, guess what? I'm the creator, you're not. You know what? And then Job, what does he do? He repents in ashes and dust. He still doesn't know the reason why God brought it upon him, but by God reminding him who he is, that I am the almighty creator, Job then realizes, you know what? You have purposes that I don't understand, and I don't need to understand them. I just need to trust you. That's essentially what that dialogue ends up being at the end. And then he restores him. And then he restores him. But it's this whole idea of just trusting God through all of your circumstances and trials. Yes, Rick? Yeah, this uh, ordeal with Job reminds me of Christ on the cross when he calls out for God. Why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, and that's um, Psalm 22. Yeah, that's that's from Psalm 22, um, and, and that's a it's a marvelous it's a it's a marvelous psalm. Um, I I won't give too much away because I think Jeremy next week is going to be talking something about um, about some of what uh, what God went through on the cross. So I, I won't give too much away there. But yeah, marvelous uh, marvelous psalm because if you go to Psalm 22, you get to the end, you find out there's victory in all of that too. Um, so this is we we see here the patterns of how Satan operates, and we see here that we as believers. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're going to be shielded from the attacks of Satan. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Ephesians, turn to Ephesians 6. You know, just as uh, Peter said to um, resist Satan by being firm in your faith, right? Peter said, resist Satan by being firm in your faith. Look at what Paul says, starting in Ephesians 6, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Stand firm against what? Yeah, the schemes of the devil. Stand firm against these schemes of the devil. And then jump down to verse um, 14. 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, you put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the all of the flaming arrows of who? Yeah, the evil one, the evil one. Um, so and that's obviously a reference to Satan. But here's the thing. So, I mean, Paul is giving us the same kind of uh, counsel that Peter gave us. You know, stand firm in your faith. Resist. You know, you're not to fight back with Satan. We're not, we're not called to wage war against Satan. We are in spiritual warfare, but the way we wage war is by resisting him. It's by re- resisting his attacks. But here's what's interesting. For the Christian, once you've been truly saved by God, can that salvation ever be taken away? No, no. So what's happening here when Satan is shooting these flaming arrows at you? Well, if he can't take away your salvation, what do you think he's trying to do? Say that again. Stop you from stop you from witnessing to others and bringing others to the Lord, um, Julia. Make you doubt. Yeah, make you doubt. Sure, sure. You, you know, basically, it's this. Uh, we as believers, we, we have seasons. I mean, there should be a sanctification process, and we're continuing to grow more and more. 
But there may be seasons where we have difficulty, where we have some doubts. And um, sometimes we, we start to become too self-focused. And, and in those seasons, when we have difficulties and doubts and we become too self-focused, how useful are we to the kingdom of God? How useful are you to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ within the church? How useful are you as a witness and, and as a testimony of, of the wondrous grace of God in your life? You're not. You know, by, by Satan shooting these flaming arrows at you, he can't take your salvation away. But what he can do is make you, he, he can make you just ineffective for the battle. He can make you ineffective for warfare. He can take you off the battlefield. Now, it's not a permanent removal. But this is, this is how he operates. If he can't take away your faith, if he can't break your faith, if he can't successfully accuse you before God the Father, which is, he's, which is what he's trying to do day and night, he can certainly render you ineffective. Because the more ineffective you are, the more successful he is, right? We are waging spiritual warfare whenever we are walking with God. And, and really, a lot of times we tend to think that, yeah, you know, Satan goes after unbelievers and, and, and whatnot. No, Satan doesn't have to go after unbelievers. Unbelievers already belong to him. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Take a look at Ephesians 2. What's that? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly the point. But in Ephesians 1 to 3, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So this idea is that before Christ, we already belonged to him. Why would he attack us if we already belonged to him? It's when you no longer belong to him that he wants to attack. That was the whole point of attacking Job. That was the whole point of wanting to go after Peter. That was the whole point of actually going after Paul, because Paul would be afflicted by Satan as well, right? He would have that thorn in the flesh. He would have that thorn in the flesh. And, and it's interesting, when you look at that thorn in the flesh, take a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12. We may end up talking this entire hour about the operation of Satan, but that's okay. This, I think this is very helpful to know. I think this is very good to know. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul writes this, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. That's a purpose. To keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, here's what's interesting. Whenever passive language is being used, and when I say passive, you know, you can give something to someone that's active. That's the active form of the word give. Or you can be given something. That's the passive form, right? Something gave something to you. And a lot of times when passive language is being used, the idea is that it's been given to me by God. Okay, so when, when it says it was given to me, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The idea is that God is the one that has given that to him. A messenger of Satan to torment me, and then he repeats again the same purpose, to keep me from exalting myself. And right in that verse, you see both the idea that Satan operates, but he can only operate within the boundaries that God has given him. And so this is one of those times where I believe God has told Satan, okay, you may go after Paul, and let's see how he's going to respond. And guess what? Paul remained faithful. In fact, the more that Paul was afflicted, the more he glorified God, right? I mean, it's amazing that Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or how light and momentary afflictions are producing for us, what? 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The more Satan tried to attack Paul, the more he ended up glorifying God. But here is the thorn in the flesh. In verse 8, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And by the way, this is proof that our prayers are not always answered the way we want them to be answered. Right? Prosperity teachers will, will teach, look, whatever you ask, God wants to give it to you. They'll say that over and over again, but we see an example right here. Paul, and there, was, there were few men, if any, in the world at this time more righteous than Paul. And here he is asking a request from God, remove this thorn from me. And, and what's the response? Verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And so Paul realized after those prayers that, no, this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan was by God's design for a good purpose. So Satan himself has evil intentions, doesn't he? But God can take the evil intentions of Satan and intend them for good. I mean, that's the whole idea of Genesis 50, 20 with uh, the story of Joseph. Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So that's how God can take evil actions and intend them for his good purposes. So we see here, and I think we're pretty close to the end of our hour. Yeah, we are actually. So I, I think this was, um, this was a good study, a good discussion, though, um, because I think it is important to understand how Satan operates um, in, in your life. Because as Christians, and as Michael had mentioned earlier, I mean, it's when you become a Christian that Satan goes after you. So becoming a Christian doesn't mean your problems, all your problems go away. In fact, it's going to introduce new problems that you didn't have before. But what we have is we have eternal security in the future. We have an eternity with God and Jesus Christ. And, and, and in some, some one sense, you can say, well, you know, this seems unfair that we follow God and now we're subjected to this. But remember that we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a fallen world amongst people that hate God amongst demons and, and Satan himself who hate God. And to, for us to glorify God, to, for us to be able to stand for God, is, is an opportunity to glorify him by being able to resist those, those forces around us. But understanding how Satan and demons operate will help us to be able to endure those trials when they come and to be able to have, us have the right kind of mindset in handling that. All right, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer.